Welcome to Cinema of Meaning, a podcast from myself, Thomas Flight, and my fellow video essayist, Tom Vanderlinden, from the channel Like Stories of Old. We seek to explore the depths of what cinema has to offer. And this week, we're talking about Francis Ford Coppola's 1979 epic, Apocalypse Now. Before we get started, we have an announcement that we want to make at the top. If you want to support this podcast and help it continue on an ongoing basis and get involved in a community of other listeners to the show, you can join our Patreon now at patreon.com slash cinema of meaning or check out the link in the description below. Tom, Apocalypse Now, I know how I feel about it. This is, Mm -hmm. for me, one of the movies in a sense. One of one of the movies ever. (laughs) One of the, (laughs) yes, one of the capital T-H-E movies. I'm curious about your your background on Apocalypse Now. When did you first watch it? What was it like revisiting it mm-hmm. uh, for this episode? Yeah, for me, this is one of those movies that I didn't like at first when I was maybe 16, 17 and just getting into film. And you check out IMDb, the top 250, like Apocalypse Now is one of the, the, the first that comes up as one of the movies you have to have seen. But I I don't remember which version I watched the first time I saw it. I think it may have been the Redux version because I remember it being very slow and long-winded and kind of overstaying its welcome. But so, yeah, I I think that might have been the... Because that's that's kind of now how I feel about the Redux version. Yeah. But then a couple of years later, I went back to the theatrical version and I, like, immediately I already enjoyed it a lot more and it's become one of my favorites uh, ever since. I just love the style of it, the stylized. It, there's just something about, I'm not sure even how to describe it. The whole movie kind of feels like a fever dream. Like it, it's yeah. detached from a sense of, any sense of reality in some way. It feels uh, like a movie, but at the same time, it also, it, it never feels fake or staged and yeah it is, it's, yeah it's, it's kind of paradoxical but yeah there's just something about it especially in the even if you look at the opening it's become one of my favorite opening sequences of any movie basically the way it just opens with not even so much an introduction to the story but more so an introduction to the mood of the film yeah and combined that with the narration which i also really love i think this is also one of my favorite narration tracks of any movie i'm not sure how you would describe that style of writing that they use for the the voiceover parts because it's not like a factual account of what's going on it's also not poetic in the sense as uh, the kind of voiceover you would see in a terence malick movie it feels kind of film noirish in some way very stylized very cinematic i guess like just the lines like i hardly said a word to my wife until i said yes to a divorce that's right (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) It's, very, it's like heightened and... Yeah, and, like people yeah. don't talk like that, even in a narration right. or... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've reread the those first lines like dozens of times and they're still... They just throw like little sentences in there that don't really make sense. Like everyone gets everything they want or something like that. And he said, like it continues like, I wanted a mission and for my sins, they gave me one. Right. And it's just... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just like little mood pieces. It's... It kind of poetic, I guess, in a sense, but it's not, yeah, it's, there's just something so special about it. And I, yeah, I just, uh, yeah. I really love it. It's an incredible movie, in my opinion. And it's worth noting, you mentioned the different versions of the film. Mm-hmm. The version that we're discussing specifically here is the 1979 theatrical. There's the Redux that comes after that, which is like, mm-hmm. I think a whole 
almost a whole hour longer than the theatrical. Yeah, like 40 minutes, I think. Yeah. Yeah. There's the final cut, which is kind of in between the two. But we're talking about the theatrical, you know, there's mm. interest, some interesting material in both of the longer versions. But in my opinion, the theatrical is the best. It just it's tighter and it's just so long once you throw the yeah. other stuff in there. And it's already a hard kind of a hard movie to watch. It's mm -hmm. almost a horror film in a lot of sense, more than it is like a like a lot of war films are kind of action films with, you know, other elements thrown in. Mm -hmm. This has very little of that. It's it, it by the end of it, you're it's really a horror film, in, in my opinion, but not a horror film in like a fun jump scare kind of way and like a mm -hmm. like spooky, like pit of your stomach kind of dread kind of way. And so it's a hard movie to watch. And like two and a half hours is already enough for me. <laughs> I love this movie. Absolutely. But like it's yeah, it's it's a rough ride. So by the end of it, I'm like, OK, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's especially because it has those kind of fever dream-ish uh, yes, or that yeah. fever dream-ish atmosphere it's you can only sustain that for so long until it becomes or it starts to feel still and you kind of snap out of it before the movie is even over yeah and i also think the i remember the redux version or compared to the theatrical one uh, the theatrical version has this at least in my opinion this pretty steady decline into madness and it has these yes because it's this typical adventure structure where they you get from stage one to stage two to stage three and they literally travel from one to the other and then to the next and so on and i think in the three theatrical one version there's the most clearest progression between each stage like every stage adds something new and especially it, it feels adds, like you go deeper yeah it, each each stage intensifies uh compared to the previous one and i remember in the yeah. redux version there's some it kind of breaks that progression there's one stage that kind of feels uh less intense than the one that came before it and then also yeah. uh yeah that's just not that nice linear progression in or that linear descent into madness that's kind of what the story is supposed to be about and uh so yeah for me the theatrical version that's uh that's where it's at yeah i think you hit the nail on the head with mentioning how the opening in a sense sets up not really the story but mm -hmm. like a mood it kind of sets up a character although martin yeah. sheen's character in this captain willard is more of like an audience avatar. He, what character there is is mostly in voiceover. The character mm -hmm. on screen just kind of passively observes what's what's happening and kind of yeah. just is carried by the momentum of. He's he's a character who's already at the when we meet him at the beginning, he's already kind of been through the ringer, and so he's just kind of seeing things. He's not, he's the one character who's not caught up, doesn't seem to be caught up in the insanity that's mm -hmm. happening around, yeah. around him. But the movie really at, in that beginning sets up this mood and then it carries that mood forward, descends into that mood and just takes you on a ride into the heart, into the heart of darkness, which is the mm -hmm. book that this is kind of a loose adaptation of. And I feel like this movie will get into specifically what's going on in, in Apocalypse Now and some of the things that make it great. But in a lot of ways, this movie kind of burst, not a genre necessarily, but a format, the kind of heart of darkness, quote unquote, format mm -hmm. that a lot of films have since sort of followed or replicated. The Lost World of Z kind of tries to do this. Mm. 
Ad Astra is kind of like Apocalypse Now in space. Yeah. You have Werner Herzog's Agiri, The Wrath of God. It also follows like a trip mm-hmm. down a river. I think that came out before Apocalypse Now, right? That's possible, Agiri. actually. Yeah, I think it's Coppola was actually inspired by Herzog in that case. But they might both be inspired, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, uh, 72. Novel. Yeah. 72. So I think Apocalypse Now may have been written before Agiri came out because... Mm-hmm. Coppola had actually writ- had the script before he even shot either mm. of the Godfather films, I think. So the script was there, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it was George Lucas was originally set to direct Apocalypse Now, direct. but he wanted it to make this more more a Saving Private Ryan type movie. Right. And then the script went through dozens of revisions and it ended up yes. with Coppola who turned it into something completely different, which is a fascinating story on its own, but... Uh, we won't get too much into that either, the making of this movie, but mm-hmm. it's one of those movies that yeah. kind of just like couldn't ever exist again. It's its own thing. Mm-hmm. Nobody else has created really anything like it, I think, since. Mm-hmm. But it's it was shot over over the course of like 16 months in the Philippines <laughs> and like... Total nightmare. <laughs> yeah, total <laughs> nightmare. Just like my personal pet theory is that like this is the movie that basically did Francis Ford Coppola in because Hmm. he made this incredible stretch of movies and then hit Apocalypse Now and his career just kind of never really recovered. I mean, he's made decent movies since then, but nothing on the scale Mm -hmm. or to the degree of his Apocalypse Now and pre-Apocalypse Now films since Apocalypse Now. And I think he just like (laughs) spent his entire (laughs) sense of being on this movie and uh, a lifetime uh, worth of mental sanity yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah if you're interested in that there's plenty out there about about the making of uh, yeah so yeah i I do want to mention on that note that this movie does have one of the best companion documentaries about them or or like the making of versions of um which is called hearts of darkness a filmmaker's apocalypse i think which is i think one of the most fascinating documentaries on any making of for any film but also specifically for uh, to get a better understanding of apocalypse now it's it's uh, yeah it's amazing yeah okay all that said that's all the preamble mm-hmm. this is a big movie there's a lot going on i think thematically you know obviously it's dealing with war and horror and all these these subjects so i think to kick things off i just want to talk about a little bit like my personal experience with this movie this mm-hmm. movie for me was a very formative one, not just in terms of what it showed me in terms of cinema. When I watched this, it kind of opened me up to certain ideas about what was possible with film. I watched it fairly early on in my in my exploration into like broader, more, you know, artful cinema. Mm-hmm. So the way that this presents its mood and its subject matter and the way it leans more on style and tone than it does plot was very compelling to me. But also this movie really did impact the way I viewed the Vietnam War, like war in general. It was maybe the first like movie that I encountered personally that felt like anti-war. Um, mm. And that's something yeah. you've talked about on your channel a lot. Yeah. And we can talk about whether or not that's even maybe the case here. And there's other movies that I think do similar things or do it better or other movies that even came before this, maybe that do that. But for me personally, this was the first one where I was like, oh, this is really a narrative that's not about heroism and about 
you know, mm-hmm. the, the enemy is the bad guy and we're the good guy. It's about the darkness and insanity and horror of war. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that had a very specific impact on me that in, in some ways like changed my view of the world. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it, it's I guess it was kind of similar. It took me a bit longer to appreciate it as a movie, but I think it's subconsciously stuck with me ever since the beginning, because I do remember that before I revisited it, it at a later age when I was more uh, familiar with cinema and what good cinema is, so to say, I did remember vividly like the the mood, the atmosphere, just the some of the specific images and scenes. Obviously, like the ride of the Valkyries was iconic from yeah, even on first watching it, and uh, but also that opening and just the way it talks about war in a detached, almost mythological sense. In some way, it it's it's not trying to be Saving Private Ryan. It's not trying to, or at least I don't think it is. It, it's not trying to be this realistic depiction of what war is like. But instead, it captures more the. It, it sort of approaches war from the inside out. Like it, uh, what you see is kind of what goes on inside the minds of the soldiers, and that I think is beautifully reflected in the way uh, Coppola gives shape to the outside of all of it and every stage there's like some aspect of something internal that's clearly visualized and articulated in that in a way that makes it palpable or or more tangible for those who are kind of coming at it from the outside i think yeah i'm not sure what this movie is like for people who have actually experienced war i do think there's some controversy i guess uh, when it comes to the question like is it anti-war is it pro-war what does it glorify what does it condemn but yeah as i've i've talked about it on my channel for quite a bit and it's obviously a more complicated question than right oh this movie is this or that definitively or this so and so definitively it's just it's kind of a a shallow question to ask i guess right there's definitely i think coppola was definitely mindful of how audiences relate themselves to depictions of war on screen and the kind of maybe the the kind of power dynamics that are displayed and what they communicate really to an audience. And I think he was very mindful of the way he, for example, portrayed Kurtz, the general at uh, in, in the heart of darkness, so to say. Yeah. And Willard also as the, as you mentioned, the kind of audience avatar, but also as someone who's definitely not your typical hero, but more someone who's kind of broken on the inside in some way. He's divorced from his wife. Like that's the just the, the 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 factual information that we get but you also see him in that opening scene he's just kind of waiting in in this sort of purgatory space going mad and basically waiting for another mission like that's i'm not sure if that's was supposed to be a depiction of like ptsd or is someone who's kind of been impacted by war and therefore has nothing else outside of it anymore someone who's only yeah. who's in some way become an addict to war like he knows this is destructive to him but he cannot snap out of it anyways and so yeah that that's something i found really interesting and also especially as you uh, as you were talking about him kind of being this passive character that's just i kind of realized just how little he actually does in the movie like he doesn't participate in, in the when you have the ride of the valkyrie scene that whole giant ambush scene on this village like he doesn't do anything if i remember correctly he's not partaking in the action and uh, i do remember the the scene that comes afterwards i think where they have the cheerleader type ladies uh dancing on the stage he's also kind of sitting on the sideline just watching and observing and 
he does, I think there's a scene afterwards where they get attacked on their boat. That's when he does return fire or obviously he protects himself. But overall, he's very, he has very little to do until the very end of the movie, which is yeah. something you probably couldn't get away with today if you <laughs> have a movie with the protagonist who's that passive, yeah. at least on a physical sense. Like he's right, mentally, right. like as you said, like we we get to know him through his voice over to the narration. And that's more like that's where his journey happens. It's in between all those stages. You get a lot of those. Uh, I, I forgot how many there were. Like there's a, a lot of almost between every stage. There's a scene where he's going through the files again, reading up on uh, Kurtz and kind of contemplating or reflecting on his life and what it means to him and how he's trying to figure out how this apparently this this like super decorated colonel or general i'm not sure what his rank was but colonel i think yeah yeah how this decorated war hero could descend into this almost or he's described as this savage man who's lost like all sanity and become this yeah. monster that needs to be put down basically and he's trying that's kind of his journey he's trying to understand how that could happen and if it could happen to him could it happen to Willard as well I guess that's right the journey that's happening there but yeah I wasn't sure where I was going with it but yeah to his passivity he reminds me in some ways of the daughter character from the Irishman who hmm. exists kind of mostly as like a gaze like there's all this stuff happening and mm -hmm. then something crazy goes down and she's kind of in the corner just like watching and you can tell just by looking at her face that she's seeing kind of seeing it for what it really is yeah. and i have that same feeling with willard in this movie where like you said in a lot of those scenes these sequences will play out and it's just absolute insanity Mm -hmm. And all the other characters are kind of acting like this is normal or mm -hmm. this is great. You know, I'm excited about the Playboy bunnies, you know, in the middle of the jungle or whatever, whatever it is that's going on. <laughs> and he's just kind of sitting in the corner and every now and then it cuts to him and he, the look on his face is just like, what, you know, in literal hell is like happening here. <laughs> and that's just kind of, you know, that's the role he takes. And then he's kind of forced into this position at the end of participating or mm -hmm. getting involved but i think his figure and the way he's interacting with things kind of anchors the film in a in an interesting way as we just like journey through these different insane ridiculous scenarios mm -hmm. the movie would have been vastly different if he had been a more active participant in each stage and yeah. if it was more presented as okay now we go to war now we have some r and r and now we have this other stage where there's another ambush and then there's now we get to Kurtz at the end and yeah I can imagine if he was more if you have a more active protagonist that's what who you attach to as an audience member and that's kind of becomes your world I guess when you look at Saving Private Ryan for example you attach yourself to Tom Hanks who's kind of I think he was portrayed as a veteran or as someone who's who's not completely naive to war, but he also he does participate in each stage of it and he is an active force in everything that's going on. But when you have, as you said, that outside observer, you become much more reflective immediately about uh, what all that signifies instead of just experiencing it from the inside, so to say. So in that sense, I think it's 
was definitely a great choice because it really contributes to this sense of not just we're going from A to B to C and then finally we reach the goal, but it feels more like, okay, we it's only because we went through A and then through B and then through right. C that we arrive at, like it becomes more of a, you, you feel the decline and the madness at the end of it. It feels like a logical conclusion of the journey that came before it instead of just a right. random stage at the end of disconnected uh, episodes. And yeah. It also makes it much more ambiguous as to how each stage contributes to a little bit to the madness that ultimately overtook Kurtz, I guess. And that is maybe also overtaking Willard or at least some of his companions at that, at that point. Like the, you have Lance, the character who is also kind of broken by the end of it. He becomes this kind of strange how, how would you describe him at the end he's just kind of he's like spaced out yeah he's i mean he's been dropping acid the, the whole time apparently oh uh, yeah he's, he's, he's <laughs> definitely checked out uh, that's might be the best way to put it lance is the the one i'm thinking of right he's the yeah the, the, the surfer. surfer yeah yes yeah yeah he's spaced out he's ready mm -hmm. to become and like the photojournalist basically i feel mm -hmm. like by the end Yep. Yeah, I think to me watching it this time, the thing that was really on my mind was, I mean, it's this kind of the central theme of the film in a lot of ways, but this question of like insanity and what is insanity and this journey into insanity, what stuck mm -hmm. out to me this time is how quickly things are just completely insane mm. from the get go. Like there is a descent, but that doesn't mean that like it starts out with there's trappings of logic and rationality at the beginning where they're like, you know, the first real major sequence that you get is that Flight of the Valkyries section. Mm -hmm. There's there's at least like a purpose, quote unquote, to what they're doing there where they're like, well, we have to get this boat to the river. You know, this is how we can do that. But it's, it's already just like it feels like everybody's completely lost their minds like mm -hmm. one of the standout performances in this whole thing is robert duvall as the bill kilgore character who yeah. bombs drop right <laughs> beside him and he's like it's basically a, as if like a fly is buzzing in his face yeah and he's obsessed with surfing the waves while bombs are mm -hmm. dropping all around him and he loves the smell of napalm and all this stuff and that section also to me is emblematic of why what is truly incredible about this movie which is so much of that insanity is captured not just through like that performance and the lines of dialogue and the absurdity of the scenario but mm -hmm. the overwhelming like menace of the of the actual images that you're seeing mm. on the screen because all this stuff is playing out but then you're meanwhile you're seeing helicopters swirling everywhere and bombs dropping and the uh the vietnamese are are running and scattering and there's people dying and and but that's all just kind of like the background to mm -hmm. this center focus which is like oh well, you know those waves look great mm -hmm. to surf on <laughs> and the insanity starts there and so i think in a sense the question that's being played with is what does true insanity mean within that context? And is is it that much of a leap from that to where Colonel Kurtz is? Like mm -hmm. the the difference is is I think by the end of the film, one more of degrees than it is of than it is of actual I don't know, yeah. it's hard to describe 
it's not to say that Kurt is guilty, whereas the others are innocent. Like there's a sense right. that everyone's got blood on their hands, so to say, yes. quite literally. So in this case, yeah. And that's the sense in which I think Kurtz has kind of justified himself. They, there's that line where he says something about calling him a murderer. You can call me a killer, but to call me a murderer. I think you have a right to kill me, but you have no right to judge me. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. No right to call me a murderer or something. And then Willard also says a line that's like accusing someone of murder in in Vietnam is kind of like handing out speeding tickets mm. at like a raceway. Yeah. And so there's this sense in which, like, the insanity of Kurtz, after you go through this journey of just utter insanity to get to Kurtz, the insanity of Kurtz almost feels like there's this very strange tension where you can't exactly figure out how to poke holes in his mm -hmm. insanity because you're like, well... It feels honest in a way. Or right. stripped down from, like some kind of facade or something that's some veil that's been lifted yes yeah but then also what he's doing is so obviously just like horrifying mm -hmm. that i think then ideally what that does is paint everything that's come before it with that same tinges it with that same sense of like mm -hmm. oh it's it's all this it's all part of the same insanity that was the feeling I was having watching it this mm -hmm. time. I don't know if that resonates with you for for how you think those things are interacting. Yeah, definitely. I'm not sure if it's... Uh, I don't think that's what you were saying, but it, I'm not sure if it's supposed to imply that Kurtz was somehow more innocent or less deserving of his fate in, at the end of it. But it's it's obviously a general statement about the absurdity of war in many ways. And uh, I guess maybe also specifically in this case, the absurdity of being in Vietnam for the Americans, that is. Right. I don't think I would say he's, I mean, more innocent is maybe the wrong word. I think like, I think to indict him, you have to kind of indict the whole thing, everything mm -hmm. else along the way. And that's where, I mean, we're jumping maybe too far ahead mm -hmm. at this point, but that's where I think him being a kind of, sacrifice that the u.s army is making to kind of justify their sins of being like oh well he's the one who went insane so we'll kill him like a sacrificial bull and then like and then that somehow cleanses us i don't know if that's part of the maneuver i don't think he's innocent but within mm -hmm. the context of all of it yeah i don't know that he's significantly more guilty than anyone else along the way, if that makes sense. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, obviously he's he's doing horrific things and I don't mean to yeah, I'm yeah. not trying to. Yeah, it's easy for that to fall into that trope of, oh, he's evil, but at least he's honest about it. So that makes it somehow less hypocritical than if he was more uh, like self-righteous about it. Uh, right. Like evil, if you're doing evil, that's still evil in my opinion, at least. I think that's what I'm getting at is yeah. less that what he's doing is any less wrong and more mm -hmm. that I think what like Kilgore is doing at the beginning is the same thing. We've yeah, just yeah. pretend that going into the village with helicopters and blowing everything up is less somehow less savage and more acceptable than mm -hmm. the pure insanity that Kurtz is, yeah. is wreaking at the end. Like the difference between those two things is just 
you know, constructed in our own imagination, essentially. I, that's, yeah. that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, I can see that, like, that's part of the point where if you lift the facade of war, then that's the essence of the madness that remains. And that's also present in some of the earlier characters like Gilgore and pretty much any of the soldiers you meet during this whole kind of journey. But right. I guess it also means that the reason why they can't have Gertz is because if someone were to lift that curtain over like, yeah, or over the constructed story of it all, then it would reveal that everything has been mistake or even like corrupted and evil and absurd and violent yeah. and destructive. And that's obviously something that the people in power cannot have who are kind of directing the, the narrative, so to say, or yeah. the ones who are like benefiting from having the war or having the war be perceived in a certain sense. Those are the ones who really cannot have people like Kurtz who expose the whole thing for the scam that it is, I guess, in this context. Mm -hmm. This episode of Cinema of Meaning is sponsored by MUBI. MUBI is an online hand-curated streaming cinema with exceptional movies from all around the world. If you're interested in this discussion about Apocalypse Now and you want more behind-the-scenes content, MUBI has a short 30-minute documentary called Dutch Angle, Chaz Gerritsen, and Apocalypse Now, and it's about the set photographer for Apocalypse Now, and it features a bunch of images that you can't find anywhere else. You can check that film out for free and explore the rest of the amazing library at MUBI when you sign up for your extended 30-day free trial by going to MUBI.com slash Cinema of Meaning. You can click on the link in the description down below or go to MUBI.com slash Cinema of Meaning to start exploring MUBI's unique library of exceptional film. Thanks again to MUBI for sponsoring Cinema of Meaning. So yeah, but maybe you should back up a little bit to... Yeah, sorry, I jumped, uh, <laughs> I jumped to the end. Because <laughs> I think there's a lot a lot of in interesting stuff to say about each stage yes. individually. Just, I think, just starting with the, the Ride of the Valkyries one, for example, that's, I think, one of the biggest set pieces that's in the movie, or at least also in terms of uh, runtime. It's obviously the biggest in terms of setup and production, but I think that's... It's interesting now because I always thought that that was the scene that kind of prevents this movie from being truly anti-war because it's just this is the stage that at least to me communicates the way the military can really glorify warfare and even turn it into this game with like oh we put on the music get the boys riled up and shoot some charlie squatting in the bush or whatever like there's, there's a sense of the game of war that's kind of set up there you have the enemy that's just who's dehumanized in this sense. You have the, the good boys who are uh, glorified or elevated as heroes, and it turns into this whole spectacle. And that's, I guess that it makes sense that the movie uh, wants to portray that, like wants to portray yeah. the dynamics of it, but that kind of runs into that timeless issue of whatever you depict, you automatically advocate for in some way. Like, uh, you see, have you seen the movie Jarhead, for example? There's that scene which is set during the Gulf War, but so a couple of years later, and there's a, a scene there where all the boys in the army they are watching Apocalypse Now and they're kind of cheering at right. the ride of the Valkyrie scene. Like to the to actual soldiers, this is a very inspiring scene. That's very motivating, yeah. and it's like, and I, I get it. Like every time I watch it, I'm still, I feel. I like I feel caught up in it like um you, you have the music and it's kind of the intensity rises and you're like it, it, it's hard not to say like oh yeah let's let, let's get them and, 
But that's obviously like counterproductive to any anti-war sentiment that you want right. to present. But when I was rewatching it this time, I also had a feeling that it's just like that, there's a part of me that just felt that the sense of excitement also just comes from the spectacle of the filmmaking itself. Yes. I think people always know when they're watching a movie, they're not watching actual warfare. So they know they're watching a, a staged simulation at best. And especially Apocalypse Now, which has these, I think one of the biggest practical sets and the biggest uh, practical setups with dozens of helicopters, there's explosions, there's fireworks that's supposed to be the rockets, I guess. There's the big music. It's, it's just such an achievement in filmmaking that it also becomes exciting just on that account, which is something that I think we have to consider when you talk about the meanings it portrays. Like, you ha I think you have to take into account that people know they're watching a staged reality. And when they're watching an especially impressive one, that becomes also a just a joy in itself that might seem counterintuitive to the meanings but that yeah. kind of operates on a different level and maybe should be perceived or should be judged as such but yeah it, it's obviously that that remains one of the more complicated questions within any war story or war movie especially right. when you have like audiovisual depictions of combat and how do you make sure to not glorify it in a sense like or how do you stay true to the reality like even if you want to portray some like the chaos of battle or a glorious victory or whatever and how, how do you balance that with making any meaningful statement about war as a whole or but you know i think this is a very interesting thing to discuss so i want to tease it out a little bit for the listeners i mean we've already talked about this stuff so we know this but for the listeners it's like we're not going to come to any kind of conclusion here i say <laughs> that mostly because i have some points for like both sides that yeah, I yeah. Wanna lay out there so to to that scene specifically mm -hmm. I think everything you're saying is very valid, especially the bit about like the it being a spectacle. I'm, mm. I'm finishing up this video about Nope right now, uh, talking about spectacle in that context. And we talked a little bit about that in our episode about Nope. Mm. But the kind of tension of in that movie, to some extent, Jordan Peele is like critiquing spectacle, but he's also creating spectacle. That same dynamic is kind of at play here where it's like, oh, this is a critique of war, but like you're creating mm -hmm. a spectacle out of war that people are going to come pay money to like watch. But, you know, that's a paradoxical kind of trap in itself that maybe you can't really escape. But that's I mean, and that scene is so spectacular, especially through the context of watching it now where even movies now that rely heavily on practical effects like are all mm -hmm. augmented by visual effects yeah. to some degree but you watch that scene and you're just like it's so insane nothing else and like it's it, all yeah. all it's all happening like mm -hmm. you know it, it's all real flames and explosions and it's just wild to watch but so i have two points related to the kind of depiction endorsement question and one mm -hmm. is that like sometimes i think about these things and i wonder if it's important if that element of producing the excitement is sometimes an important element in kind of portraying or engaging with these ideas or scenarios in film if you want to critique them in any kind of serious mm -hmm. way so i think about this a lot with like scorsese's filmmaking where he's showing like gangsters doing yeah. this really bad stuff and in a lot of ways he's showing like the romance of of that life or that lifestyle you know he's not portraying it as like oh look at all these sad men who are you know 
destroyed by their lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It's, ooh, wouldn't it be cool to be a gangster? It's kind <laughs> of the tone with which he portrays that world. It makes you implicit in the in the whole thing. Yeah. Right. And I think there's maybe an element at which that could be at play here where they're, like you said, with the Jarhead scene, what that kind of portrays is there are people who Mm -hmm. do get caught up in this kind of excitement of war. And in doing that, they dehumanize the enemy and they are pumped up to go, you know, blazing in and or or even if that's not what's literally happening, that's a fantasy that compels people to engage in this type of war. And so does depicting it in a way that kind of indicts us in that help us understand how people perpetrate this kind of action. Mm -hmm. To me, I think it does to some extent, but obviously there's a fine line between doing that and also becoming part of creating that fantasy for people Mm. that will then, you know, maybe provoke excitement about this kind of thing. I think like to me, I'm like, you got to be blind to watch, apocalypse now and like come away from it at the end even if you're excited by this scene like by the end you should be like oh no let's this is the time to enlist (laughs) (laughs) right yeah but but that said i mean there's people who misread films or take take people are going to take whatever they take from a, a movie one thing i like with that scene is that there's a clear framing that kind of if you're paying attention makes it horrifying Or like before you see the helicopters, you're in the helicopters riding in with the music. And then there's one quick moment where it cuts to silence and there's just all these children in like the Hmm. square coming out of a school. Then they realize the helicopters are coming and they go running away. And then that square kind of, it goes back to the perspective of the attacking helicopters. But then that square kind of features prominently as like a landmark throughout the scene. Mm Mm-hmm. And in the back of my mind, the entire time is like the that initial image of like the children in that little square. And so mm-hmm. as all this horror is happening, like it, to me, it's it's very present that like there's children live like this is a village where like people and families and children live. And so I think there is this attempt to like frame all of this within a context that that kind of highlights that. But but that's a very small piece. Mm-hmm. There's also uh, other things that this movie does that I think maybe undercut that a little bit, but we can we can get to that later. Yeah, just as a general thing, it's obviously impossible to account for every possible interpretation of your movie. So in that sense, I feel like filmmakers are to some extent off the hook whenever someone appropriates something in a misguided or uh, sort of corrupted way. And right. I think that's just the inevitable consequence of putting anything out in the world that there's always uh, if people want to appropriate something into their own meaning they'll jump through the mental hoops in order to make that happen anyway so i don't think that just because there's some like maybe a a small minority that sees this scene as something or the maybe even the movie as a whole as something that's unironically pro-war then yeah that's you there's like not much that you can do about it except for have disclaimers every few minutes or so like this is (laughs) stop enjoying this (laughs) (laughs) and uh second i think also what we touched about earlier what i think works really well also in the framing of the whole scene is the kind of layer of absurdity that's added to it 
uh, because there's a, there's a kind of straight way that you could have done this scene where the, the helicopters come in and you have Willard as the audience character who's reacting like shocked at the violence that's being committed and there's slow motion shots of innocent people dying and sad music and the image becomes desaturated or whatever and this point is like there's a way to shoot this in a, right. in, in a kind of authentic way so to say that invokes the more direct emotions that someone would be feeling maybe in such a moment but i think pointing out the absurdity of war is more effective than just communicating the sadness of war and because i think everyone has some understanding that war is destructive and leads to innocent victims and just overall it, it, it's not like the best thing that we do as humans so i think the more effective thing is pointing out that war is irrational to some extent or at least absurd or contradictive to whatever heroic purpose they think they're achieving with it and so i like the whole layer of kilgore essentially because he kind of ignores willard's like he, he has the orders or or willard has the papers with the directions that kilgore sh should follow but he kind of throws them away because he's more enticed by uh, lands the surfer and so that's yeah <laughs> his main motivation is just to like he, he keeps the focus away to some extent from the horrors that are being inflicted and towards the as you said like oh look at the waves it splits in both directions and right <laughs> and he wants to get surfing as quickly as possible and that's i also noticed this time how little it actually shows of the violence like there's impressions of violent imagery but or destructive imagery but it's so many of just helicopters flying about and random explosions yeah. and there's there's some shots in the aftermath of wounded soldiers and people who are killed but there's not a lot of direct shots of like we don't see the children being mowed down like up close and personal there's a right. sense of detachment there because it keeps us focused on the on the waves and the surfing which kind of adds to the absurdity of it all and which in some ways is i think might be more effective than directly showing the violence which might feel more manipulative in some way people tend to be more wary when they're being emotionally manipulated into feeling yes yeah sad for something or someone so yeah that's i think the last thing i'll add about that scene in specifically i think it's framed yeah. as best as it can be for the purpose of this story and any interpretations that kind of stray outside of it i think you're gonna have them anyways but and i do like as you said that it makes you a little bit implicit at first in the spectacle by arousing like it you can imagine just by feeling the excitement of the scene you can imagine maybe feeling the excitement of those soldiers or at least uh, some of the characters who are uh, right. more directly in, inspired by such pro-military um, endeavors i guess yeah it's a complicated issue that you know it's not clear-cut there's not a binary like hey you know this is this is good or bad i know like all i know is for me personally the way this movie affected my view of things and like at the end of the day over time like i've come away from this movie like i came away from this movie more anti-war than i was before watching it so i don't know what impact it has on other people but it had a distinct impact on me of coloring my opinion of of war in in a certain direction i don't remember if you if we've talked about if you've been watching atlanta at all or if you've watched any of the the show atlanta i've watched the first three seasons and a little bit of the fourth i think okay the fourth is just starting but for yeah. some reason I, i'm not going to go down a huge rabbit hole about atlanta mm -hmm. but <laughs> for some reason watching this i was thinking of that show because there's a in some ways a tonal similarity 
where mm. they're shot in a very like straight deadpan way. They're grounded in like a very specific kind of realism, but there's also like an absurdity that tips into like a kind of surrealism mm -hmm. at times. And then you have these characters who are just like wandering through these absurd or surreal environments, just kind of like, what is, mm -hmm. what is happening around me? Anyway, I just, yeah. I was thinking of Atlanta when I watched this because they both kind of tap into a similar kind of re like grounded realism, but just absurdity uh, at moments mm -hmm. that for some reason I personally find effective because it's a feeling mm -hmm. that I get looking at the world sometimes you there there are times where we all for the most part kind of frame life within some kind of scheme that helps us have a sense of normalcy because mm -hmm. we don't want to go insane <laughs> but there are moments where you just like encounter certain events or like you hear about something and the response is I feel like one of these characters where I'm just like, what, yeah, what is really happening? Like, this is absurd. You, it, it feels the way it does. I'm not encountering scenarios as ridiculous. Mm -hmm. A colonel being obsessed with surfing while people are being slaughtered just down the beach. But sometimes <laughs> it does feel like that. Yeah. Sometimes it does feel like people are being slaughtered just down the beach and <laughs> there's other people standing over here going like, oh, oh the waves break two ways. Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah, no, that's <laughs> life. That's like yeah. part of the absurdity of the world. Yeah, there's, there's obvious like strange political situations or something like that, or social or yeah. cultural issues that might have you feeling like that. But I guess to some extent, it's part of life in general. Uh, I think that's something that the philosopher uh, Albert Camus uh, wrote a lot about, yeah. about the kind of fundamental absurdity at the heart of all things. And that every time or every now and then it's sort of, hits you and then like like you have this sudden awareness about the strangeness of everything surrounding you and the absurdity of everything and then it kind of fades away again but it's always there yeah. like lingering in like in the back of your mind and yeah that's just just in the life is absurd yes before we kind of get off of this whole topic of mm -hmm. the war theme messaging of this movie I one thing I thought about this time that I don't think I was aware of on previous viewings was the extent to which even though this I perceive this as a film that is pretty critical of war and is sort of portraying the horrors of war it is very obviously doing that from a western you know mm -hmm. american ethnocentric perspective where the horror that's being portrayed is not so much the destruction that's happening, but the absurdity of that destruction for the the American characters that are having to participate in that destruction. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of all the Vietnamese, the enemy is always nameless and kind of voiceless. I think there are moves like we already talked about with the children there to kind of frame things in a way that like shows they're real people who are being impacted by this. Mm -hmm. But the scene where they attack the boat of in innocent people is a good example of how the horror of that scene is kind of framed around the characters, the American soldiers yep. on the boat, the horror for them of having accidentally slaughtered, you know, all mm -hmm. these innocent people and sort of the, their own terror in that experience. Yeah, That's the frame of the scene and much less like, oh, these innocent civilians 
were slaughtered. That's mm, present, but yeah. that's not the perspective and frame of the film. And I don't know if that's I don't know if that's bad because I think necessarily because that this movie is about the horror of enacting war mm -hmm. and so it's that's a perspective that is worth taking and illustrating mm -hmm. but it just struck me it struck me particularly this time that there's a there's another side to yeah. the horror that the movie isn't really even engaging with that there's probably movies that do that i don't know if there are actually if there's like specifically about the mm -hmm. vietnam war where there's movies that engage with that horror from the perspective of the the victims instead of the the perpetrators because the truth is it was har it was horrifying for both parties but this movie specifically is hmm. more about the horror for the perpetrators and less about the horror for the victims yeah uh yeah i agree with that um i do find it interesting that that scene where they shoot the innocents on the boat is so much later in the film it's one of the final yeah. bits of uh, before we reach the finale with Kurt. And now that I think of it, I also find it or found it a much more affecting scene than the Ride of the Valkyries, even though you have this mass slaughter going on. But suddenly at the end, you feel much more for these like three or four citizens. Uh, I think it was like just a handful yeah. of people, whereas maybe in the opening there was like a slaughter of dozens. But I guess maybe why that scene works for me is because at that point you've kind of stripped down the the absurdity or you, you're more aware of the madness of it all. And then it feels especially tragic when you have this small contained or relatively small and contained scene that shows an actual interaction with individuals instead of, instead of with the idea of an enemy or a victim or yeah. I agree there's no there's obviously no voice given to the Vietnamese here. And I guess that's it doesn't bother me that much because I, as we said in the beginning, this feel this movie feels detached from the actual war in Vietnam to some extent. At least for me, it it feels more it feels like Heart of Darkness with a Vietnam setting right. instead of a more yes. straightforward exploration of the Vietnam War. And I think it's also more about the not so much about the voice of the victim, but more of what. The cost of being the perpetrator, I guess. I think why I'm not bothered by it is because it puts the blame on the perpetrator. And in that sense, it doesn't matter who the victim is, but it just shows like if you're going to be like, if you're going down this path, that's where you will end up. And and then regardless if that's Vietnam or Afghanistan or I don't know, some other right. country, like some other misguided war effort, like who's the victim doesn't matter that much specifically, but it's just, it kind of... It feels like it wanted to show what you get when you try to be like the great war hero. Like this is the path that it, it, it's not going to be fun cheerleaders cheering you on as you have these epic spectacular battles and get like promoted and you get your decorations and you go home to your loving wife who's baked the cake or whatever and you will live happily ever after. Like it shows that there's a cost to war that's inevitable and unavoidable almost that that that's just going to get you and there's no escaping it and so yeah maybe in that sense it's yeah i think it's really speaking to the people who would want to or who might see themselves as capable of being a good soldier or maybe dream or have like aspirations of being the good soldier and then this might be a kind of wake-up call or a disillusionment from that whole belief yeah 
yeah so yeah i think obviously it's it's, it's easy to say like oh you should have given more time to the vietnamese but i think that would have been a different movie it's because uh, it's obvious whenever you have whenever you're reflecting on a war uh, through cinema or other means like it's important to i think to show the other sides and to also show to really humanize the victims but i don't think that has to be a rule for every individual movie but yeah and in yeah. this case yeah. i don't think it uh, it's that much of a, a deal breaker for me i think i ultimately agree in that this movie is a movie about that's examining sort of the heart mm -hmm. of darkness of the of the perpetrators of yeah. the war that's being enacted here. I think what just struck me and that is worth noting is that examining that horror specifically is not all encompassing of the horror of the scenario of war or the scenario of this war and that there is kind of another side to that that isn't hmm. given a voice here. But I think you're right that that's a different that's a different movie yeah. that would serve probably a different purpose or would reach a different kind of audience. Yeah. I think even with a movie like Platoon, for example, there it would have been, it's been, it's been years since I've last seen it. So I'm not sure how much attention is given there to the Vietnamese people, but I feel that's a more realistic or the, like We Were Soldiers, for example. Um, yes. Those are the kind of movies where you would expect, or I, I would expect a more honest depiction of the other side, or at least a more balanced perspective yeah. of who's fighting for what and who's really suffering and who, who just, yeah. who, who's everyone who's involved here. And, but yeah, I feel Apocalypse Now for me stands, still stands out for me in, by being so heightened from reality that it kind of transcends that whole question a bit. Yeah. I think you're right in that ultimately it's less of a movie about the Vietnam War and more of mm -hmm. a movie about war and evil and our capacity for insanity and absurd evil that's set in Vietnam and uses that as a, as a setting mm -hmm. and set within the Vietnam War. Yeah. So I already kind of jumped ahead to the end mm -hmm. earlier and talked about Kurtz, we get to Kurtz and him kind of being the deepest, yeah. most insane. We've gone through this journey of insanity, the, yeah. the briefly maybe mentioning the bridge scene. I forget the name of it, but there's the scene where they roll up on the bridge. That one all, mm -hmm. I don't know if it adds any new, anything new that we haven't already touched on, but that scene to me is particularly like kind of horrifying in a sense, the, the mood it presents, the, the aimlessness. Mm-hmm of things where it's they're not even they don't even know who's in charge what they're fighting for anymore it's just war perpetrating itself for yeah. the sake of being there yeah i think if you have the ride of the valkyries as the scene that kind of sets up the gamification or the gamification of warfare and the dehumanization of the enemy then you have the stage with the cheerleaders who get uh, harassed by the end of it there's sort of a, a loss of moral values maybe in some way or a corruption of right. goodness like the innocence becomes attacked there to some extent and then you get to the bridge and then yeah it's that's where it feel it, it, it literally feels darker because it's nighttime and there's you cannot see what's going on and there's it's kind of shot in this very or uncomfortable way it's you cannot see what's going on you can tell who the enemy is or where they are and uh, what they're doing and that just feels like the final stage, like where it's entered into that last stage of madness, I guess, before you get to the purest embodiment of that, which is Kurtz. 
Yeah. And so we get to to Kurtz. Mm-hmm. He spouts a bunch of hmm. philosophical... Yeah. I don't know if there's any... I've watched this movie a bunch of times. And I don't I don't know that there's like a co- any actual kind of coherence to what Kurtz is sort of like saying or representing mm-hmm. by the end. A lot of the lines were apparently like improved by Marlon Brando on set. So I don't mm-hmm. know that within his within what he says, there's a whole lot to mine in terms of, oh, this means something or he mm. he symbolizes some some kind of philosophy that's then being destroyed. I think it literally is a kind of insanity. There's a there's just a madness to it. Mm-hmm. The last time I watched it, I specifically felt that the climax was a bit more, to some extent, directionless than I remembered. And I do know yeah. that there was a lot of trouble behind the scenes with the ending because I th- I feel like be- <laughs> they were like eighty percent on their way into the production and. They were still writing, like like Coppola was slowly going insane himself because he couldn't figure out the ending. Yeah. And I think Marlon Brando was also not cooperating in the best possible way. And so yeah, yeah there there is a sense that you you can feel the improvisational quality to the kind the stuff that went on behind the scenes. It kind of bleeds through in the final product, I think. Or maybe that's just me being aware of it and now projecting it back right. onto the film. But it does feel like you get to the climax and then there is a... I had a sense that the movie at that point doesn't really know what to do anymore. Like, because it kind of... It's not like an immediate climax also. There's... He kind of... Or Willis kind of arrives and he has this interaction with Kurtz, who's then... uh, Who's introduced to us at that point. And then it just meanders on a little bit like a few days pass and Willard's kind of hanging out thinking about what to do and Kurtz also doesn't seem to be too concerned with what he's gonna do and I'm not sure if it's that if I would see that as a critique of the film or that it was the or the intended effect to have this weird haziness at the end of it and this sense of being just totally lost into as insofar as that you should not be knowing clearly what's supposed to happen anymore or yeah I, I can definitely see that that's that that has value to the thematic arc for the overall movie but yeah i, I agree that i don't think that kurtz has anything particularly meaningful to say at that point uh and i think that's also the intended effect of the movie that he's not someone he's not some secret sage of wisdom who's right finally dropping the truth bombs at the end of the movie and yeah. he, he's clearly distraught mentally and just i think that's also what uh willard says in the narration at some point that he's just a man who's absolutely broken or someone who has a clear mind but a mad soul i think is somewhat at some point i think maybe that was the photographer the, character yeah the dennis hopper yeah. character uh, says that about him yeah and so yeah that's the I do like that he really does embody that conflict between uh, the rational and the irrational that's alluded to in the opening scene. That's the the conflict within the heart of every human being. But yeah, it's 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 a difficult in, in any movie that follows this kind of structure where you have this long build up towards the end and you are building up this character and then delivers something that's satisfying. That's obviously going to be really uh, troublesome. But yeah, overall, I think I yeah I I think it went it's the best possible ending for the movie. I think there was an an alternative ending that was shot at some point or um, 
or at least written, but I think this is the better one where it just you have Willard contemplating what he has to do and he kind of realizes that, okay, this man has to die. Like everyone yeah. at home wants it, the jungle wants it. And he just performs the act and in a pretty brutal way. Like I, <laughs> I was thinking this time, yeah. like, why didn't he just like shoot him or at least strike him once more effectively instead of basically slaughtering him like and like the cows that are that the, the scene is juxtaposed with but but yeah um, i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah i think I've, I've felt differently about this ending at different times i've watched it uh and i think with different versions i don't mm. know i don't remember if the ending i don't think the ending changes that much in the redux maybe mm. it's a little bit longer there's a, yeah. a little bit more material i don't think it changes included. significantly but no. mostly i think like in the longer versions, once I get to the end, I'm just like fatigued and I feel mm -hmm. okay, let's get this over with and get to the end. <laughs> but I agree with you mostly that, especially this time, I felt like it works. The scenarios they've been going through to get to this place have been absurd and kind of aimless and illogical, but the movie has stayed constant within that. But by the time we get to the end, it really does feel like things start to disintegrate and you lose track of time, how long they're actually there, mm -hmm. what's really going on. And I do think that kind of works yeah. as the final descent into just the madness of this world. It it becomes more about the imagery and the haziness and yep. the, the space like you talked about. And I think there's interesting tension there between as we're proceeding towards Kurtz, Willard has been on this journey of kind of feeling maybe like oh maybe kurtz's insanity is kind of justified in a way mm -hmm. like or like inevitable or i can see how he got to where he is and there's that moment where they send him a letter he gets a letter at the bridge and then he finds out that there was another guy who was sent on the same mission that oh, Willard yeah. was i keep forgetting about him they don't make a big deal out yeah. of it at the end i think he's he's there just like standing silently mm -hmm. with all the other uh followers of kurtz but there's so there's that question of like, will he too fall prey to kind mm. of the insanity you you feel by the end an understanding of how that could happen or why that has happened. So, yeah, there's an interesting dichotomy yeah. set, set up there between sort of falling into the insanity or in a sense, like justifying the framework that perpetuates the insanity by fulfilling his mission and aligning himself with yeah like the... I, th I think the difficulty with the ending is that there's no real direction for moral victory for willard's character yes. at that point there's no way for him yeah. to resolve that situation in any way that's gonna feel meaningful or at least morally yeah. uh meaningful I'm, I'm still not sure what exactly his final act or his decision to kill kurtz and uh uh just go out of there uh, what that signifies is that some kind of is there a like a hopeful or like a positive note there that he goes through the ringer but snaps out of it at the end he, he can th that he makes his way back to, or at least sets out to go back or yeah how, how do you see that um, specific choice by millet i mean what you just mentioned about willard having no moral victory mm -hmm. it does i'm not that up to speed on my you know, history of the Vietnam War, but from what I understand, mm -hmm. like, I think that position is indicative of 
the way a lot of people felt by the end or, mm. you know, kind of how things ended from the American perspective was like, we got into this situation. There's no good way out except to basically just like throw up your hands and be like, okay, uh, you know, mm -hmm. all I can do is kind of stop the damage. There's no way to get out of this yep. and like have your cake too of like, oh, I'm the good guy here. Mm -hmm. And the victory is to kind of admit defeat <laughs> and admit that like, you know, you just got to get out of there. He does. I mean, in a sense, he completes it. He completes his mission, but he feels like a broken man by the mm -hmm. end, too. And there's the whole move where, like, he comes out afterwards. I already mentioned, like, maybe the symbolism of Kurtz being treated as, like, the sacrifice that, that yeah. you know, oh, he's the insane one and we can kill him. And that kind of justifies the rest of us in some way. So maybe there's some symbolism there. We also see Willard coming out onto the top of the steps afterwards and everybody kind of bowing down to him. And there's this sense in which like maybe he's replacing Kurtz. And then, you know, I think he, he abdicates that in a way and people lay down their weapons. I don't really know what's going on or what the, what the final, you know, I don't yeah. get a, a clear sense of like, yes, this one specific thing is happening by the end, but I'm fine with that in this movie because I think if it had tried to go out on a really strong note of like, and here's the here's the message that we mm -hmm. can wrap this up with in a in a neat tight little bow, it would kind of undercut the mm -hmm. depiction of the absurdity of it all leading up yeah. to that point. It's supposed to leave you wondering a little bit. Yeah, every time it ends, there's no credits in this movie anywhere, beginning or end. Mm. And every time it ends, I'm like startled by that. I'm just like, oh, it's so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's also that weird moment where Willard becomes the new god of the people, so to say, when yes. when he's killed Kurtz, but then he's just like, nope, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> so there, in that sense, there is a rejection of whatever is going on there. But uh, yeah, it's uh, I agree. It's it. I think it's supposed to leave you questioning that and maybe making up your own mind to what extent it's like what exactly has happened there to what extent is this good or do we even have to see it do we even approach this in terms of good and bad or righteous or wrong right or, um, yeah what do you do when you've been backed into a situation that's so dark that there's like there is no hmm. there is no like good way out of it it's just yeah you know the best thing you can do is just leave basically yeah escape escape the horror yeah the horror as kurtz uh mentions yeah Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can support it in two ways. The first would be listening on our creator-owned streaming service, Nebula. If you listen on Nebula, you can listen to all of our episodes a week early and without any ads or sponsorships. And you also get access to our monthly bonus episode. We've talked about a bunch of movies so far. Another war film, 1917, that touches on some similar themes that we've discussed here. 2001, A Space Odyssey, Drive. Our most recent one is Alien Covenant and we have more coming each month. Right now, the best way to get access to Nebula is by signing up for CuriosityStream, which comes with a free Nebula subscription. You can find more information about that in the description. The other way to support us is to support us directly on Patreon. When you do that, you can join our community where you can discuss each episode with us and other listeners. And you can find more information about that at patreon.com slash cinema of meaning, or go to the link in the description below. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.